Let's pray. Father, thank you for the the reading of your word. Help us to hear it as you intended it to be heard. And would your word be life to us, new life, new life with you and with each other. Hear us in Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So there were two doctors drinking beers, having a conversation, and the one asked the other, why aren't these people dying from heart attacks? And the answer wasn't the punchline to a joke (laughs) or a riddle. The answer was something called the Rosetto effect. Rosetto is a small place in Pennsylvania, and the name originated from these Italian immigrants who moved there from Rosetto, Italy. They moved there to work at these local slate quarries in Pennsylvania. And it was 1961 when those two doctors were having that conversation, one of whom was Dr. Stuart Wolf, the then head of medicine at Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma. And they were talking about this unusually low rate of heart disease among the Rosettans. Hardly anyone under the age of 55 died of a heart attack. When they looked at men over the age of 65, the death rate from heart attacks was half that of the greater United States. And the death rate from all other causes of death was 35% lower than it was supposed to be. There was no suicide, no alcoholism, no drug addiction, little crime to speak of, no welfare. No one was on welfare. No one was even suffering from peptic ulcers. (laughs) So what happened next was a bunch of scientific investigators funded by the federal and state governments descended upon Rosetto (laughs) to find out why is this so? What is with these people? Are they eating super healthy? Are they exercising a bunch? Do they have superior genetics? Are they drinking from some kind of fountain of youth? And the answer was no. (laughs) They smoked cigars. (laughs) They drank a good amount of wine. They fried their their sausages and meatballs in lard. (laughs) They ate all kinds of food that was full of cholesterol. They should have been having more heart attacks than everybody else in the nation. So what was it that made their hearts so healthy? Well, they discovered it wasn't food, exercise, genetics. What it was, Rosettans were nourished by other people. In the words of Dr. Wolf, they were nourished by strong family ties, by a close-knit, caring community. That's what did it. That's what gave their hearts literal health. At the center of Rosetta was the church, in fact, and a common Christian faith. Three generations living under one roof was the norm for homes. Homes were built in close-knit clusters without fences, so you could mingle, you could check in on each other regularly, daily, you could cook in each other's backyards. Those who were successful and wealthy never ever flaunted it, 
never talked about it. That was taboo. Rather, those people saw a greater responsibility to share what they had with the community. So that those who hit hard times would always know someone would help them out when they needed help, without shame. These were a people marked with dependence on God and interdependence on each other. And they lived longer and healthier because of it. It's powerful. That should be a clue for us, not just to figure out one more thing of how to live longer, but for how to live. Should be a clue for us is how we were meant to live. And this morning I want to connect this to the triune life of God. So this is ordinary time. Uh, This is the first Sunday of Ordinary Time, but this is also Trinity Sunday. It's a day to behold our triune God. And for some of us, our brains start to fizzle, uh, short out, (laughs) when we try to figure this out uh, sometimes. It is a mystery. But today I want to focus and pay particular attention to the relationship between the Father and and the Son that they have in the Spirit. To the life that goes on there between them, the eternal life, the intimate life, the beautiful life that is there. And not just to behold it, but so, so that we will also be swept up into it by the same Spirit. Imagine being there back with the disciples, and you're watching Jesus in his relationship with his Father. And you're watching how this is soaked in the Holy Spirit. That is what the, the baptism of Jesus should be showing us, telling us. This is when the, the Father poured out, it's water language, poured out the Holy Spirit, but then the Spirit comes in the form of a dove upon Jesus. As the Father's boasting on Jesus, look, behold, this is my Son whom I love in whom my soul is well pleased, that I delight in. And then from there you see the Father healing people, delivering people from demonic spirits in and through and with Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Then you see the Father reconciling the world to himself in and through and with Jesus. And then you see the Father giving Jesus all things, holding nothing back, giving him all authority and all things. And then you see Jesus receiving. He receives the Holy Spirit. He rejoices in the Holy Spirit as he talks with his Father, communes with his Father. We see his eyes and his ears always to the Father. He's always living for and with the Father, holding nothing back himself, ready to sacrifice and suffer all things for his Father. The atmosphere between them, the spirit between them, is full of love, joy, assurance, communion, life, intimacy. They're so close, we read, as we heard in John this morning, they weren't just with each other, they mutually indwelled one another. In the words of uh, author and Inkling member Charles Williams, They co-inhered 
one another. We see this, maybe we hear about this, this wonderful, generous, intimate dance they had in the Spirit. We think, man, wouldn't it be nice to to get in on that, to taste that, to join that? And of course, the good news is, we can. That is the call of the good news. And that is how the Spirit comes to us. He comes to us as the Spirit of adoption to adopt us into that life and to share that with God and with each other. That brings us to our New Testament reading this morning, Romans chapter 8. We've been going through Romans. We're going to go through it for a few more Sundays to get through chapter 8. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there to Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. I'm going to be going verse by verse, and then ending with the verses in John we heard this morning. So Paul starts out, he says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are obligated not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, that sick, self-centered mindset. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, maybe even early from a heart attack. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live, and you might even live longer, like the Rosettans. But notice here he starts with, you, we are obligated. So contrary to some, kind of, some ideas of grace going around, God actually expects a response to the grace of the gospel he gives us. He expects us to live a certain way. He went to a lot of trouble so that we would live a certain way. A way that reflects the way God relates and lives and has through all eternity, to live and reflect that in our bodies, with each other, in our communities, what the Bible calls eternal life, the life of eternity, the life that's been going on in eternity within God himself that he wants us to share in and reflect. That requires something from us. It requires us to turn, of course, from that self-centered mindset of of the flesh that ruins our relationships with each other and with God, and to turn to that God-centered, other-focused mindset of the Spirit, the Spirit who leads us into that kind of thinking and living, the Spirit who leads us into Rosetto kind of living. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. One of the marks of the children of God is that they are led by the Spirit. The Spirit who leads us into communion with God and with each other. That's what the eternal Son of God demonstrated to us when he walked the earth, right? He was marked and he was led by the Spirit from conception throughout his life and ministry through cross and resurrection to the Father's right hand, the Spirit was leading him always to communion with the Father and with the people around him. And to be a child of God is to be conformed to his image, which means we're led by the Spirit like Jesus was led by the Spirit. So the Spirit, of course, first leads us to Jesus 
to acknowledge him as Lord, as Savior. But then from there, the Holy Spirit leads us to relate to the Father like Jesus does. To know the Father like Jesus does. Like a lot of us Christians, we have stopped at Jesus. We don't realize Jesus is meant to take us to the Father, to know him, to know the goodness of the Father. Paul goes on, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So backing up, anxiety there, we can translate fear as anxiety. Anxiety is not a fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us assurance. He gives us assurance of our adoption in Jesus through the finished work of Jesus. And he gives us confidence in the goodness of our Heavenly Father. And that eventually he's going to work all things, all the bits, the terrible hard bits of life into something good. That hasn't happened fully yet, but he will work all things together for good. But yeah, if our life is is marked by anxiety, there's a lot of helpful resources out there to help us in our anxiety, but the best resource of all is a fresh portion of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, who comes in to assure us of all kinds of things, our salvation, our security in Christ, our adoption in Christ, and with Christ to cry, Abba, Father. A cry that's full of confidence in the goodness of our Abba. Abba is the Aramaic word for father that Jesus used in his prayer life. We saw him in the garden praying Abba, which speaks probably to his prayer language. Usually if you speak more than one language, you speak in that language that's most dear to you, typically the one you grew up with. So Jesus probably knew a number of languages, but he prayed in Aramaic and prayed Abba. And Abba is a word that both children and adults continue to use for their fathers throughout their lives. They don't switch at some point from from daddy to father. They just say Abba. Which suggests something of our relationship with God. In normal life, when we have parents, we usually grow up to become independent from our parents, and that's a good and healthy thing. But with our Abba, maturity is growing in greater and greater dependence on our Abba. Greater and greater intimacy. That co inherence. And to be children of the triune God also means to grow in interdependence on each other. The prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17 that we heard in our gospel reading addresses both of these. He prayed, if you're listening, for his followers that they would be one as, and then he defines one, as Father you are in me, and I am in you, that they may be in us. So here Jesus defines one, not as sameness, as exact sameness, but as closeness. 
intimacy. So the Father and the Son are so intimate, they're not just with each other, they mutually indwell one another. They co-inhere one another. And yet they don't dissolve into each other. They remain distinct persons in this intimacy. So there is a unity and a diversity going on in God himself. That's, of course, reflected in our creation, in creation. But Jesus here is praying that we would share in that oneness. It's profound. And we echo this prayer every Sunday, right, when we pray during communion, that we would evermore dwell in him and he in us. And then Jesus prays for a particular effect from this oneness. He said, so that the world may believe you have sent me. The closer we get with God in this mutual indwelling, the more our life is going to be a credible, compelling witness to the world. Witness comes with witness, as Steve Machia keeps telling me. And then Jesus prays, well, we, our lives demonstrate the good news of God in that closeness. And the goodness, we're, the, the good part of that, the part of that good news that I'm looking at this morning is that relationship between the Father and the Son that we are adopted into by the Holy Spirit, swept up into. He prays, the glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one. So now he's switching from being one with God to being one with each other as we are one. So he's praying that that mutual, coherent oneness dwelling with God, that we would have that not only with God, but with each other. I and them and you and me, that they may be completely one so that the world may know you have sent me. And have loved them, even if you have loved me. And of course, that's always why, when there's division in the church, the Christian message is no longer credible. And that's always why, when we live in that communal life of the Spirit, that's life. People notice, and our message becomes credible. That's always how it's been. That's where the Spirit leads us. He leads us into that communion with God and with each other, that divine dance of the Trinity, the triune life. So just backing up again, God exists as a communion of persons. This is part of the revelation of Jesus in the New Testament. The word Trinity, of course, is never there, but it's all throughout the New Testament if you're paying attention. This is in contrast, say, to Zen Buddhism. Where in the beginning for Zen, there is undifferentiated oneness. There is no relationship. There is no persons in relationship. Relationships in Zen would be part of the fall for them in that story. So for them, unity is without diversity. In Zen, relationships are part of the fall. And so part of salvation in Zen is to be delivered from the actual illusion of a you and me and a relationship between us. So the goal is to get back to that undifferentiated oneness, 
like a drop returning to the ocean. Is a typical imagery there. But in contrast to that, Jesus says persons in relationship are part of the eternal, permanent reality. As we pray every Sunday, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. The goal is not to eradicate relationships, even though at times that feels like it would be so much easier (laughs) for some relationships in particular we have. But the goal is to heal relationships. The goal is to let the Holy Spirit lead us in our relationships with each other. To be led by the Spirit, to learn the tune and the dance of that triune life of God in the Spirit. To learn what that means for each individual relationship we have. That requires discernment from the Spirit. It certainly requires the Scriptures. That's our greatest guidance. But we need the Spirit to help us know how that works out in each relationship we have. And relationships... These are, this is the domain of the Holy Spirit. He is called the spirit of fellowship, the spirit of communion, of koinonia. When he breathes, he breathes communion. He inhabits that space between us and brings connection, communion, holy, righteous ways of relating to one another. It's what the Spirit has been doing for all eternity between the Father and the Son, and that's what He does in between us. That's what He does. And if enough of us follow this leading for long enough, we can start to create a culture like Rosetto. That's what happens. That reflects this triune life of God in flesh and blood in ordinary life. Unfortunately, there's a sad ending to Rosetto. If you know the the studies that have gone on there, they went back and studied it again, and eventually what happened was a suburbanization of the area and of the town started happening. Fences started coming up between houses. People became less connected, more independent instead of interdependent, more consumeristic. The wealthy started flaunting their wealth instead of sharing it, and people became sick. The hearts of the Rosettans started to become just as sick as the rest of America, metaphorically and also literally. They started having just as many heart attacks as everybody else in the nation. The pressures and the temptation to this heart sickness are strong. They're really strong here in greater Boston. And that's why we make neighborhood groups and triads a priority. Neighborhood groups in that they're in neighborhoods close to where you are so that you're with people who are in your neighborhood. That's why we continue to make it a priority to gather and eat in all the different ways we do and to serve one another in the ways we do. 
That's why some of us choose actually to live closer to one another. Some of us choose actually to live with each other for this very reason. This is why some of us, this is why we need to give attention to strengthening our families and our bonds of friendship here. And we have a history here of doing these kinds of things in this church, but maybe some of us need to give greater attention to some of these areas. Maybe some of us have felt that heart sickness coming upon us. And we need to make greater intentions here along these lines to avoid that heart sickness that isolates and just consumes so that we would live, so that we would be led by the Spirit into communion with our Abba and with each other as we're swept up in the triune life of our God. May it be so. Amen.